Today's scripture reading, uh, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and it clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the, Hit, uh, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations and numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would, dest- and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their uh, azurism and burn their carved images with fire. Good morning, everybody. Good to be back with y'all. Um, we're carrying on our uh, series of lessons on being prepared to um, prepare to make a defense for the gospel. This is from 1 Peter 3.15, and if you've been here the past uh, couple months, you've heard several references to this passage. Um, we're told in 1 Peter 3.15 to be prepared to make a defense for the, the hope that lies within us, the gospel hope. And as we've said, um, the idea basically is that if somebody notices our behavior or um, you know, the way we think or the, our value system or something, they may be intrigued to ask about that. And we need to be ready to give an answer, to make a defense, to explain. In any of those, each of those is a fair translation of this word, Greek word um, apologia, from which we get apologetics. Um, and you can see the NIV, the NLT, the ESV all render it with different nuances of that word. Unbelief is on the rise in our society. That's just a statistical fact. Repeated surveys have shown that. A survey by the Barna Group that Jake and I referenced, um, I think Daniel maybe referenced the same uh, survey on Wednesday night, um, from a couple years back found that of this growing number of unbelievers in our society, the belief that science conflicts with the Bible was identified as the barrier to faith for about one-fourth of all millennial respondents. There was some of it for boomers too, but it was a little slightly less. Um, That's a lot. And that's why, if you remember from a few weeks ago, um, we addressed the question of science in the Bible and tried to frame that in a, I think, biblically sound way. Because half the problem is trouble we borrow by assuming things about the Bible and then demanding that you know, science square with that. And sometimes we've already sort of uh, given up the ship before we even have the conversation. Because there's so many ideas out there about what faithfulness to the Bible means and how you read the Bible that are really are assum- modern assumptions being brought to it. Um, so we tried to frame that in a way that was, um, you know, I, I, at least in my conviction, theologically, biblically sound. Last week, Jake... And I appreciate very much his excellent sermon, which we listened to online from the beach. Jake addressed the problem of natural evil, uh, you might call it, or some people call it cosmic evil. The suffering that results from uh, sickness or the pain and loss that are unleashed by natural disasters, just the way the world is designed, tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, kind of the built-in features of God's creation that end up causing us some suffering. Everything from cancer to you know, a tidal wave. Um, what, what do we do with that? And that's a real issue. In that same survey, about 30% of millennials and Gen Zers, who were non-Christians, that is, attributed their unbelief to the difficulty they have in believing that a good God could allow such evil or suffering in the world He created. Well, allowing evil is one thing. Condoning evil Overtly commanding evil is altogether a different thing. So if the former has been a sticking point for some folks, the latter has struck a lot of people as outrageous, as immoral, as unethical. So today we're going to address the problem of evil that is apparently sanctioned by God, by His Word. When it, what do you do when it looks like the Bible itself is condoning or even demanding something that the Bible elsewhere says is evil, is wrong. What about that problem? Okay, so, and there's a whole lot of folks for whom that's the sticking point. 
So if we're going to be ready to defend or explain our faith, we've got to be grown men and women and be ready to talk about the things people are talking about a little bit. That's, Peter has the context of the Roman Empire behind him. A whole different narrative and story about you know, what makes the world tick and who's the real gods and all that. And he's got to be, it's not just a vacuum, you're in a context. And we've got to be aware culturally, socially, um, what, what is going on in folks' mind to some extent to be able to build a bridge to where they are. The answer is the same. Jesus, the resurrection, new creation, all of that, the Bible. The questions people, the questions we have to relate it to might be different. And that's where we've got to be nimble, light on our feet, and ready to respond to give an answer to the people around us wherever they are. Why, some ask, does the Bible permit slavery? You know? Which almost everyone today thinks is evil. And would turn to the New Testament Bible passages to, to prove that, as they did in the 1850s and 1860s in America. Civil War was in many ways a holy war. Um, it was very theologically loaded. Pulpits were talking about it on both sides. And we still have some of those questions. What about the allowance of polygamy in the Old Testament? Practiced even among people identified as key figures in God's redemptive scheme across the narrative of the Bible. All right, And there are other questions like that. We're not going to spend too much time on those two questions. What we're going to do today is instead look at a third thing in the Bible, which many have found objectionable. And that is divinely instigated or divinely mandated violence. Problems like genocide. Go in and wipe out everybody. All right? And we're going to use that uh, as a case study, that issue, that phenomenon biblically, as a lens through which to view the whole category of instances where it appears that Scripture sanctions something that, that seems evil. This painting um, here is a little piece of a painting by an artist named James Tissot, who was a French uh, painter. I think this is from around 1900 or the 1890s or something like that. And it's a painting titled um, The Taking of Jericho. And um, it depicts the Israelites marching into Jericho, one of the cities of Canaan, which God wants devoted to destruction. This is from the reading. I want you to devote them to complete destruction along with everything in it, remember? And the same, this is the same Hebrew command that we're going to see uh, elsewhere, several times in Deuteronomy, several times in the book of Joshua. And we're going to talk about that as a lens to look at the phenomenon of it when it seems like the Bible is condoning something that at least a whole lot of folks would find evil, wrong. What do you do with that? Okay? Y'all ready? A little light sermon. Okay. Um, I, I've been reading for this one for about, I don't know, three or four weeks. It's, you still may go like, really? You should have read another couple months, dude. First of all, the challenge of divinely mandated violence. And again, what we're looking at macro level is, does, God, does God's word sanction evil? The case, the case study, the lens through which we're going to approach that, subject, that topic, that big topic, kind of the micro look, is um, this question of, of genocide. Divinely mandated violence, we're going to put it. Now, the, the, the challenge or the problem is that such commands seem to con contradict God's own stated morality. What does 1 John say two or three times that God is? When it's just going to net out God's character. God is love. The greatest commandments in God's word are love. Um, loving kindness is one of the main traits attributed to God in the Old Testament. Over 200 times we're told that God is fundamentally a God of loving kindness, covenant love. No matter what you do, He's, still, he's faithful to you. You may not be. But His covenant love, His loving kindness, His chesed is the Hebrew word. It's one of the most commonly identified characteristic traits of God. And it's that same God who forbids illicit violence. In Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, I mean, this the Decalogue, thou shall not kill. Um, Jesus, going up to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 5, um, verse, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 38 and 39, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
a little bit in tension with some of those commands, don't you think? You got enemies, wipe them out. You got an enemy, let him, give him the other cheek. Don't, don't fight back like that. Very, very different, I think, at least on the surface. We got we to gotta admit that if we're going to use language, right? Even more problematic is that Jesus and the New Testament, despite this reference from the Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus and the New Testament do not distance himself from, from God's Old Testament judgments. I think there's a little bit of a mythology about this, and it kind of helps people psychologically. And the problem is it doesn't really square very well with Scripture, and it's this. There's this temptation to distinguish, quote, the God of the Old Testament, who, you know, is wrathful, violent, and harsh, from the loving, compassionate Jesus. And then what you do is you just go with the latter in a kind of willful blindness to much of the Old Testament and part of the New Testament, honestly. And this is even, this just exacerbates the problem because Jesus is not really portrayed that one-sidedly as just pure compassion, love, never doing anything hard on anybody in the New Testament. Do you remember that time in uh, the Gospel of John, John 2.15, where he comes into the temple and he sees those money changers just abusing the purpose of the temple? And he says to them, if y'all don't mind, let me sandwich it in a couple of nice compliments. You're really good people. I know you mean well, but could you stop doing that? Is that what he does? He fashions a whip made out of leather and beats their bodies with it. If I came in here and did that, I would be fired rightfully so, maybe locked up. That's violence. That's on the news at night, that's violence. That's Jesus. Okay, let's, let's let that sink in. Those are, those are words from Scripture. They have to be real. We have to take them in and feel them. Don't blow them off. Jesus endorses the whole Old Testament, moreover. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I say to you truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest piece of the Hebrew alphabet, not to mention a whole word or sentence in the Hebrew scriptures, will pass away until all things are come. He doesn't come in and say, I'm nuking all that business. He says, I'm here to fulfill it. I'm endorsing it and going to live it out more fully than you did. And then there are those accounts in Revelation of Jesus' own fierce judgments where you know, he's the, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, from whose mouth comes forth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, to rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, the God, of God the Almighty. That's what the King of kings and Lord of lords is going to do at some point. So the idea, tempting as it may be, that, well, that was the Old Testament. We don't know what to do with that, but at least we got Jesus. Jesus kind of does some of that too. And then the Old Testament talks about the incredible loving kindness of God who's going to take your sins and throw them to the bottom of the ocean where He can't even find them anymore. Trample them underfoot. There is removed from, from you, your sins are as far as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. That's in the Old Testament a lot. Remember, the holiness of God is displayed in the fact that though you can't forgive and you are vengeful and you can't ever stop, you know, you can't forget the things, ways you've been hurt, God is holy. He's, don't think He's like you. He is holy in His selfless, gracious love. That's in the Old Testament. His ways are higher than ours, Isaiah said. And He's talking about that. Not science and religion or something like that. One of the major traits of God's holiness is he is, His love is unearthly. His selfless love is like nothing we've ever seen. There's no frame of reference for it. It has to be a revelation from without because we don't operate that way. So that, that little you know, assumption doesn't work very well. We're still left with the problem, the challenge of divinely mandated violence. There's Paul's... Well, I'm going. There's two, that's enough examples. I've cut so many things out of this. Sermon, it's still going to probably be a little long. Warning. Sorry. Um, I've, cut, I've cut. I just cut a thing then. Okay. I don't want to cut to the point where it's incoherent. That's okay. <laughs> Uh, so this any more incoherent than it already is going to be. Um, the point is, the scriptures, both old and new, say some difficult things about divinely mandated violence. And so I want to say right at the outset that we need some sensitivity on this. When this gives people pause, we're trying to explain the, the, the reasons for the hope within us, and that's sticking in somebody's craw. The last thing we want to do is be dismissive 
or not take the objection seriously or act like there's something wrong with that person. I'm going to tell you something. It may be that those who are put off by such biblical texts are doing so because they're taking those scriptural statements more seriously than we are. We read over them, we're kind of like the way you watch an old John Wayne war movie. Remember those? No, you don't really see much. It's just the hero's wonderful. And there's, you don't see all the moms crying over the people that they blew away. There's no guts ripped out. That versus watching the opening five minutes of Saving Private Ryan. You remember that? I was like, that's a different kind of war movie. <laughs> that's like it really is. And I think sometimes we read over those where it's like, ah, yeah. It's like it's a comic book almost. Some other reader... Maybe a little skeptical. They, they're, they're on a quest. They're looking, but that hurts them. They really feel it. You could argue they're taking the scriptures more seriously than you are. Right? They're taking that in in a level you're not. If you're kind of going, eh, no biggie. What's wrong with you? Wimp. Let something happen to one of your kids or loved ones like that and see if you feel that way. Right? I mean, it's, we haven't empathized. We haven't taken it in. Maybe they're taking it more seriously. Maybe they're taking more seriously the statements in the Bible about the lofty morality of God and Jesus. And it blows their mind that that could happen because they're taking the, the Scripture's affirmations about the morality, the ethical purity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to heart. And it just doesn't seem to square. So that's not an answer, but at least it's a disposition or an attitude that's going to give us a little bit of ability to listen and have a conversation, have some rapport. So people aren't walking off before we've even got to the point. Tough questions, let's be honest. That's why there are shelves of books on this question. So I can see why the promised land genocide commands, we're going into the promised land, I want you to wipe out all the people, might give people some pause. Deuteronomy 7, let's talk about the term real quick. This term, devote them to complete instruction, actually destruction, comes actually from a Hebrew word, Haram, I, I, Matt Harbour isn't here, so I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. Something like Haram, and then there's another cognate, Haram, which means they're, they're, it's used several times in Deuteronomy and several times in Joshua, um, especially in those two books, but elsewhere too a little bit. I think it's, I don't remember how many times in the Old Testament, but it means to devote to destruction, often by use of a ban. Remember that? You, everything, you can't take anything, it's all banned, it almost be destroyed, devoted to the Lord. It's like for religious purposes, you're devoting this to destruction. Those two words are, I don't remember, I think it's Haram here in, in Deuteronomy 7 too, but those are what we're talking about. This, kinda, this concept of God telling the people, wipe out everything for the purposes of everyone and everything. Uh, sometimes it's the things too, a lot of times it's all the people. For, for me, right? It's devoted to, this has a holy kind of connection to it, a, a kind of a relationship to God anyway, I should say. Now, Go over to Joshua 10. I'll give you one other example. Notice that it's used three times here. It's where I've got it italicized. This is Joshua 10 saying, go in and do all this, you know, clearing out the cities of Canaan, places like Hebron and so on, Debir. And he says, devote it to destruction in verse 37, verse 39, and verse 40. And notice every time he also says, leave none remaining. That's the idea. And so this is him sort of repeating what Deuteronomy said to do. You're going to go into Canaan, and you're going to do all this, all this haram, and it's going to leave none remaining. Now, let me just do a slight sidebar right here. Don't worry, in my notes. We should note here that some Old Testament scholars contend that many such statements, go in, wipe out everything, haram, are softened by the fact, they're kind of ameliorated or, or um, mitigated to some extent by the fact that adjacent biblical texts, okay, not somebody's idea out on the outside, just the, the text itself in a nearby place in the Bible qualifies this language of utter destruction or complete destruction. Let me tell you what I mean here. So think of Joshua saying this, but contra Joshua, the next book, Judges, which is kind of the literary sequel to Joshua, very connected, says that post-conquest, there were indigenous Canaanites still alive in the exact same places that Judges, that, that Joshua says, go wipe them all out. Go do utter destruction. Leave none. Leave nothing remaining. 
Look at the three places. I've got it in blue here. Hebrew is mentioned here in Joshua. Go, go destroy that utterly. Don't leave any remaining. Debir, same thing. They're in verse 30, 38. And then down in verse 40, the hill country, the Negev, and the lowlands. In all of those specific places, go utterly destroy them. Leave none remaining. That's Joshua. Now, we're going to fast forward to the literary sequel in the Bible. The story continues in the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua. So it's, it's not just repeating the same thing. This is like moved forward in the, in the story, right? He's gone now. That was to Joshua. He's going to lead that. Now, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight them? Well, I thought they were utterly destroyed. It said they were. Not only that, if you read the rest of this text, it's the exact same places to a T that he just said were all utterly destroyed. There was none remaining. Afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites. I guess they're not utterly destroyed. Where? The hill country and the Gable Lowland, the places where we just read they were utterly destroyed. Haram, complete devoted destruction. And look at Hebron, same thing. Look at Debir, same three places. That's not nothing. There's a lot of that. The end of Joshua says a lot of stuff about this over against the beginning of Joshua, and especially when you compare Judges and Joshua. It looks like one, one scholar, um, for, for the nerds in our church, here's one book I've worked through, really dense reading. No, no offense if you're listening, Paul Copan. I think it's safe to say they're not. Um, but did God really command genocide? These people take a really high view of Scripture. They're not theological liberals or anything like that. And they're just working through the text very carefully and slowly, like a lot of folks don't read the text, and take it seriously. And they see all kinds of reasons to think what these authors call, um, they call this um, holy, I think it's holy hyperbole. Like, it's not really saying they, they killed every single person. It's saying, it's a, it's a hyperbolic way of saying, Yahweh totally won. They totally, you know, got their rear ends handed to them. So, a, an analogy might be, and I'll give you another example. We just read this a minute ago. Stephen's material in the Family Bible Education, uh, in, I think it was 1 Kings 11, we're told that Solomon did evil in the sight, unlike David, who wholly followed the Lord. Oh, really? Not according to the word of the Lord, you go, well, okay, what do you mean by holy? Oh, there you go. Now we're into the realm of like hyperbole and figures of speech and things like that. In general, he did. But my goodness, he had a weekend once, remember? <laughs> Seven of the Ten Commands in 48 hours broken or something like that. I don't remember what the saying is, but something to that effect, somebody counted them. It's a, maybe it's something like saying, you know, football season's right around the corner. You ever notice that the, the emoji thing on your phone is very much like a touch? The praise hands are almost like a touchdown. Coincidence? Don't know. Just kidding. I love football. love college football. Coming up. So I'm going to be watching Tar Heel games. And there's going to be a headline at some point that says on Sunday, the day after the game, Clemson, Clemson Tigers annihilate UNC Tar Heels. <laughs> annihilate. What does annihilate mean? There's, they're, not, they're not there anymore. They're vaporized. And yet... The next Saturday, the Tar Heels will line up to play another game. They're not annihilated. They got just utterly defeated. I mean, they weren't even, it wasn't even close, 75 to 3. But they're not really annihilated. So that's one possibility for some of these. I'm not saying it works on all of them. I don't know. I'm telling you, a whole lot of people have thought about this. And it's not open and shut that every time it says they were utterly defeated and annihilated, it means literally because in the same biblical text, a few passages later, it, it says they weren't. So it might be a statement of like Yahweh rules. You know, he, he annihilated the Tar Heels, the Canaanites. I can't believe I'm comparing the, the Tar Heels to the bad guys. But that's going to happen this fall. Let's be real. Um, cause history. All right. Um, moving along. Second point. A real problem with this question of, of div apparently divinely sanctioned evil is that we read over these things and a lot of people, otherwise godly people, 
feel really confident to use these as justifications for their own violence. And I'm going to, I'm labeling this the misuse or the misappropriation of divinely mandated violence. So I want to talk about, I think this is really crucial. What I'm saying here basically is what does divinely mandated violence in the Bible not justify? What are we wrong to take it as justification for? This is a big problem because this is what a lot of people who are skeptics and non-believers, their only Bible they're ever going to read is, is what? Us. Christians. They're not going to read the Bible. And one of the biggest problems with Christianity for the last 2,000 years has been Christians. Just like one of the biggest problems for, for Israel and the Torah were the, were the guardians of the Torah. Pharisees or whoever. The priest. God's main problem with God's desire to help humans has always been humans. That's not weird, really, if we, if we know ourselves. So, what are some things, a couple of things that biblically mandated violence, divinely mandated violence, do not justify? First of all, it doesn't justify any and all violence or war waged by folks who call themselves the people of God. Just because you think you're trying to serve God does not give you the right to say, therefore, anything we now do is right. There are wars in the Bible. That's about how sophisticated some of these arguments have been historically. I mean, this is a broken record. Over and over, every generation does this. You ever notice that God's on the side of everybody who's ever fought a war, except maybe 20th century atheistic regimes? And he was probably still on the side of some of those soldiers who hadn't given in to Soviet communism yet. <laughs> Both world wars, the Germans wore belt buckles that said, God mit uns, God with us. The Germans, the Nazis even did that. So everybody thinks God's on their side. It's hard to go kill other people and not feel, you know, just with like, ah, who cares? That's a heavy thing to do. So just because there's some war in the Bible someplace does not mean that anybody who says, well, we're godly people, we're trying to follow God, we can just, therefore, anything we want to do, violence-wise, is good. God's commands in Deuteronomy and Joshua to go you know, defeat utterly the Canaanite indigenous peoples are like most occasional commands in the Bible. They're occasioned by something. They're not universal. Anybody this week find out where Ur of the Chaldees was on a map, fly to Kuwait, and leave Ur of the Chaldees to go to Haran up in the top of the Fertile Crescent, and then leave again to go to Canaan? Anybody do that? Because that's a commandment in the Bible, right? Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham begins, leave your father's house and go to the place that I'll show you. That's a command. Why don't we do it? Because we know it's not for us. Uh, when's the last time you, you went to Nineveh and tried to preach there? That's a command. Well, you, well it's to Jonah. Oh, that's the problem with a lot of these war commands. They're to Israel. We're not Israel. And they're not even to Israel all the time. It's a very circumscribed context that Israel could even do this. So if you go look at Deuteronomy 20, there are, there are rules, there are laws from God about how regular warfare post-conquest should be conducted. And it's very constrained. So in other words, he says, you're going to do this to the indigenous inhabitants of Canaan. Once you're in there, any other wars, you have to do this way. Basically means, logically, every other war in Israel's history, because the conquest has happened already. And they're very much circumscribed by certain things. And they're often reminded, the warrior in your midst is Yahweh. It didn't all, you don't just get to do wars any old time you want. Yahweh's your warrior. I think that's why he's so characteristic, he does weird things, like, you only need 300 men. He wants to show them and remind them, don't count your chariots. Don't do a census, David. You know, He might use them, but he's the warrior. So we, get, we need to be careful to think about this. Um, and here's a really important point about why would God do this in the conquest of Canaan? Why is he doing this on behalf of this nascent nation called Israel? Deuteronomy 7 says, I want you to devote these inhabitants in the promised land. It's going to be yours to complete destruction. I want to now flip the page and, and see something else about this. Just read the next two or three verses. God's having Israel conquer Canaan was part of God's choosing Israel in an unfolding plan to redeem all the world. It's not just, oh, you want to fight an enemy? You got some nice weapons? You got a lot of patriotism? a lot of nationalism. Just be like all the other idolatrous people who do that all the time. And you go fight your wars, because I showed you in the Bible, we, we had a war once. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying this is a kind of once in a world history time when God is doing something through Israel, not just on the behalf of Israel, but on behalf of all the other nations through Israel. All right? He says here, the Lord your God, you're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be people for his own treasure possession, not because you were more in number than anybody else, not because you were great in some inherent way. He set his love on you, and he's keeping the oath, verse 8, that he swore to your fathers. And that's why he brought you up out of Egypt, because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Something he said to them, he made a covenant. That's why he delivered you from Egypt. You are his people, you're his treasured possession. But let's look at one other passage where that phrase, treasured possession, is used famously. And that's Exodus 19. Again, the context is the Exodus. Right before they go to Mount Sinai and get the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Right after the Exodus. Moses is up in the mountain with God and the Lord calls out to him, verse 3, says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You shall be, exact same phrase, my treasured possession. Why? All the earth is mine. Why am I picking you as my treasured special people? Because you're going to be for me a kingdom of what? Priests. What is a priest? A bridge. A bridge to whom? The world. Yeah, God to the world. God is using Israel as a bridge to all the nations. They're his envoys to the world. This is why Paul, the apostle in Galatians 3, can call the promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through Israel's Messiah, the gospel. That's part and parcel of the good news is that all the nations will be blessed. It was never just about Israel. Unless you say, well, it's about Israel in the sense that everybody else gets grafted on. Okay, what everybody else is grafted on. It's the world he cares about. He chooses Israel as a treasure possession, as a priesthood to the world. So, yes, the conquest of Canaan was real. God conquered them. But it's God's act through Israel for the world, ultimately. This is about the scheme of redemption. This is about the gospel. It's the beginnings of it. In, in Exodus 15... In Moses' song, his song of praise to God after this mighty Egyptian army has been vanquished in the waters of the Red Sea, he says, singing this song of praise, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, He's thrown into the sea. The Lord has become my salvation. The Lord is a man of war. God is a man of war, too. He's incredibly compassionate, characterized by loving kindness. He's also characterized a bazillion times in the Old Testament as a God of war. That didn't mean you're a people of war, though. This is a, a, a specific scheme of redemption-related act to go in and remove those seven nations mightier than you. Why? So that God can have a people from whom will come a Messiah for the whole world. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But our, it, 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 we're not justified to just, like, any violence I want to do because I'm a Christian... You know, any war I want to launch in because I'm a Christian, there you've you got to be a more careful reader of the Bible than that, to say the least. Otherwise, what are you going to do when somebody invades you and says they're coming from God? It doesn't feel the same. Look at America, North and South, and Civil War. That's, that was the problem with that. They're like Christian brothers who were at a religious conference the year before. Now they're like squaring off, you know, across trench lines. And they're both sure God's on their side. That, that breaks down. One other thing we're not justified in doing, another misappropriation of divinely mandated, biblically mandated violence, would be for us not to take seriously the many, many biblical passages on the centrality of peace and peacemaking as signs of the kingdom of God's coming. The inbreaking kingdom of God will be characterized by peace and peacemaking. Not by war. God may be doing some war, rider on the white horse, etc. But his people, it, it looks really clearly, will not be. Some passages. Isaiah 2, eschatological, last days passage, right? It shall come to pass in the latter days, verse 2, that the mountain of the, whore, of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains on earth. 
lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. What will they do? They've always fought each other before. Well, verse 4 says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Implements of war will be converted into implements of harvest and blessing. Their spears will be turned into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It is a sign of the kingdom of God's arrival. Peace is. And so Jesus, in a sermon that's all about being citizens in that kingdom, can lead off with a statement like, Blessed are the peacemakers. I'm not talking about a weapon on the American frontier. All right? I think it's the height of irony. <laughs> you know, here's a killing device. We won't call it a peacemaker. That's Roman Empire peace. Not kidding. That, that's exactly what you're doing there. Pax Romana was, the reason there's peace is because you're dead if you don't do what Caesar says. Of course there's peace. Wow. That's not the kind Jesus brings. We're making peace by like the cross, by like taking on the violence, absorbing it, trusting that God's really in control, that resurrection's right around the corner. And then he says this in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, what does that make you? It makes you imitators of the Father who's in heaven. That's His ultimate will for you. That's what the kingdom of God is headed toward. And if we're Christians, we're already in that and supposed to be living out of that. Right? We're like God's exhibit of what's coming. Of another possibility. So, a few final thoughts about how do we resolve. Or I, I don't, I'm not going to have an answer like 1.8, you know, or some little nice pants you put in your pocket with something like this. But at least we can frame some of these issues in a more healthful way. And I think Jake did an excellent job last week of framing a lot of the issues to do with evil, suffering, and the like. Um, so we can think about them in a little bit, you know, don't fall off into that ditch or this other ditch over here. So some thoughts about resolving the problem of violence and nonviolence in the Bible. Two suggestions, and the lesson will be yours. First, we need to let God be God. We need to let God, who is an infinite being, a perspective on things that we don't even know what we don't know. Not just we don't know. We don't know, know we don't know. It's meta-ignorant. We're, we're, as finite beings, the, you know how you can see dangers for your five-year-old child, and so you're having to be the, the tough person, and it makes them mad at you, but you do it anyway because you love them. You're like, you don't see what's coming. It, the delta between God and us is infinitely larger than the delta between us and our little ones. Are we allowing for that? It's quite possible that he, an infinite being, knows some things that we finite beings aren't capable of knowing. An example might be his divine ability to judge righteously. So it is interesting that he waits until the lawless immorality of the promised original inhabitants, people like the Canaanites and Amorites, is full. It's complete. He doesn't just go in and wipe them out because you're, you're he waits four generations or something like that. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham's told, no, not yet. It's going to be four more generations, 100 years, 80 years, something like that, because they, we're waiting because they need to be fully, there's a justice sense here. They're not, they're not culpable all the way yet. Their unrighteousness isn't complete. Might be the, not might be the way we put it, but you get the idea. He's waiting on it to be a, 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 an act that, that is justifiable on some basis of right and wrong. That's not a throwaway point. I can't tell about you, and you can't tell about me in the way God can. Or another nation, you know? We don't know those things like He does. We think we do every time. We take two or three data points and we got somebody else pegged, right? We do that all the time, over and over again. We do it on, the news really does that. I think they're just, they're probably laughing at night, some bar somewhere. Look what we told them. Nielsen's clickbait, you know? I'm not even sure they believe half of it. But it's, it's never this kind of nuanced, fully-orbed view of the real situation that God has. We just need to recognize that. Um, let me share with you a quote. This is from one of Matt Harbour's teachers um, at, uh, at, in seminary. An article called Martial Memory, Peaceable Vision, Divine War in the Old Testament. He says this, Warfare in the Old Testament, as indeed all killing in the Old Testament, 
needs to be recognized within Christian theology as a strictly circumscribed, circumscribed that is a bounded or limited concession God's giving to the brutal reality of human sin. It's not like he's into it. That's how humans work. He's coming into that world. However, someone still might ask, couldn't God design a world in which war isn't necessary? The appropriate theological response is that God in fact did so. That's the world we see in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. But human sinfulness spoiled that world precisely by generating violence, which is the reason stated for the flood, if you remember Genesis 6. Someone might push further and say, even with the advent of human violence, couldn't God have devised a strictly nonviolent method for dealing with it? Here again, the theological response is that God did just that in Jesus Christ. But in order for Christ to appear in the fullness of time, it was necessary for God to elect and preserve the people of Israel. And apparently, and this is the hard part, God was not able, given the violence of the world, to preserve Israel purely nonviolently, although, even so, Israel's history witnesses to and moves toward nonviolence as it moves toward Christ. I want you to zero in on that last sentence, because this is going to be something we're going to talk about the last five minutes here. Israel's history, Old Testament history, the biblical narrative is moving toward nonviolence as it moves toward Christ. So it's accepting on some level some of the stuff that really isn't the ideal early on, but not just leaving it there. It's moving. There's development. And that's the second um, potential suggestion I'm, I'm making toward resolving the problem of violence and nonviolence in the Bible. How do you square the two? So first, let God be God. But secondly, we've got to recognize that there is doctrinal development. It's not a static thing across the Bible. There's theological change, development across scriptural history. That quote references violence. We could say the same thing about polygamy. Abraham is the epitome of faith, right? He's called the father of the faithful. David is the man after God's own heart. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, the chosen people of God, his vehicle to rescue the entire world, and yet all three of those men had, had umpteen wives. I don't, don't, I, don't come back and say, well, he only had, I just said umpteen. That means more than one. Probably means in the teens. I don't know how many they had each, but they, had, they were polygamists. That's not just saying somebody had a 14 wives or three wives or five wives. That's saying key people in the, in the scheme of redemption had all these wives. Polygamy was allowed. But you come to 1 Timothy 3 where you're reading about the leaders of a local church, the shepherds, the elders, the bishops, as they go by alternate names. And what is one of the qualifications? Husband of one wife. And Jesus, when he's asked about marriage and divorce... You know, because God said one thing in Genesis and then he allowed, gives regulations on divorce later. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, have you not read, basically the original plan in Genesis chapter 2, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. That was the original design, always. And yet, he gives provisions for divorce. Does that mean it's okay forever? Does that mean God wants that? That's a great, yeah, please do that. That's not what he's doing. He's regulating something humans do. But the real goal is what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, because the goal between God and his church is that. And Ephesians says the, the two mirror each other. That's the mystery Paul talks about. So what gives? Slavery. Somebody says... I'd believe the Bible, but slavery's in there. The Old Testament does not condemn slavery. It sure doesn't. And boy, antebellum slaveholders in the American South were quick to point that out. Cranking out biblical pro-slavery arguments to beat the band. It was an industry. There's a whole body of scholarship on that. Pro-slavery polemics and anti-slavery polemics and all that. And that's kind of what was in the pulpits when the, the slaves were out bivouacting, you know, Gettysburg or wherever. The, the Bible doesn't eliminate slavery instantly. It enters a world where slavery is routinely practiced, but man does it regulate it in ways that are radical. It doesn't just let it lie. 
It's even been said that what the Bible says in the Old Testament about slavery is subversive to the institution of slavery. It, it's already planting seeds to undercut it. Things like every seven years, you're going to give up your slaves. I don't care what it does to you financially. The paradigm for salvation is a body of slaves being liberated. The whole Exodus, the most quoted part of Revelation, Revelation quotes Exodus more than any other Old Testament book. It's a paradigm. God's not into people holding people in bondage. The Sabbath year, here's another time. After seven sevens of years, let everybody go. Amos condemns selling people for money in the prophets. The Old Testament condemns man-stealing, which is what was practiced every time a slave's child was sold. And northern Christians were quick to point that out. Like, your slavery, American South, is not the one in the Bible anyway. It's not even close, which it was not. You had a chance of redeeming yourself out of it in biblical slavery. That was happened, but was much more rare in American slavery. And then you come to the golden rule where Jesus, who when you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Here's the epitome of God walking among you. And he says, here's what I want you to do ethically. I want you to treat people the way you would want them to treat you. How many people go, I'd like to be a slave? That's kind of a deal breaker for any kind of justification for slavery. Then why is it in the Bible? Why does it take so long? And that's our question. Why would God work so gradually on these things? Does that frustrate you? If something is wrong, isn't it just wrong? Why permit it to some extent? And then just move towards some ultimate ethical standard, which you really are after, only bit by bit across centuries and millennia. John Golden Gay, Old Testament scholar, says, how do we explain the differences? But what of the differences within the Old Testament and between it and the New Testament? He says, probably the commonest way of understanding, he's English, so he's a communist, commonest way of understanding these is to think in developmental terms. In other words, change across time in the Bible. The Old Testament may then be granted to begin with rather primitive standards, but it gradually reaches higher ones. The Pentateuch itself implies that a lowering of standards came as a result of man's rebellion against God. God made a world one way, the fall happens, the Pentateuch enters that world. People are sinning right and left. They want to divorce, they want to kill each other, they're attacking each other, all kinds of stuff. How do you have a law for those people? Do you just say, it's way up here. It doesn't even make sense to you down there. Do it or I'm going to nuke you. Everybody would be nuked the second after he did that, if we're being honest. If we're really owning what sin is, everybody would be. The law says that. Well, this in turn means that when Israel became a place people, she was as sinful as any earthly people, other earthly people. The Old Testament frequently accepts rather low moral standards, polygamy, slavery, routine violence, as a consequence of the fact that when God chose Israel to be his people, he took her as she actually was. That is huge. As a historical entity. He then had to wrestle. What does Israel mean? The very people of God means God wrestler or wrestles with God. It's, it's vague. It can go either way. It's terms of what subject and what object. Probably both. But boy, they're together. They're throwing down every night. God's going, what's up? And we're going, what's up? But do it to God. Stay locked together. Ride that roller coaster together. Stay in the ring together. That is a form of faithfulness. It's the real world. That's the people, the earth, that God gets to work with because we rejected His original plan. And so, He then has to wrestle with Israel and all of us as she was, as we are, and seek to pull her up towards His ultimate will. Let me suggest to you that God is like a parent to Israel. He's like a parent, then, to humanity if Israel could be viewed as a kind of exemplar of all humans. Hosea 11 says this, the passage that's quoted and applied to Jesus, like he's fulfilling this even more, this type, this pattern. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. 
They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. He goes on to say, I led Israel by, do you remember it? Cords, rules, limits of kindness, cords of kindness, and bands, bounds, ropes of love. God is trying to rear people to a standard that's up here, but he comes to us and we're way down here. When you're raising your child, let's imagine for a minute, you've got a five-year-old child at home, and my question is, can you work on everything at once? No. (laughs) Amen. Would there be any risk with laying out to a a five-year-old every single thing without any compromise because you're a person of integrity? You're hard, tough, and you mean business when it comes to God. You're going to lay out every single thing you expect of that five-year-old when they're 25. Now, like, look, here's where we're headed. This is what a full-grown adult looks like. This is how they act. So that's the ultimate goal. So we're not messing around with all this intermediary stuff. I'm going to discipline you like nobody's business every single time you mess up because you're not acting like a full-grown human. In every area of that you mess up. What would happen to that child? They'd destroy it 15 times over. They wouldn't even know what's going on. When they get 13, 14, 15, they're just going to be like, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed. I, I don't even know. Like, I, it's impossible. I'm almost, I don't even believe you. I don't believe in you anymore. It's, the bond would be broken. Now, you could say, why didn't God make it otherwise? Why didn't he just do the whole world, make us different, have a different nature? And, you know, I don't know. He's God. But I know one thing. God is love, and that's what love does every single time. It gets in the thing. Last quote, and we're going to stand and say, I'm going to turn this off so you believe me. This just came to mind. This is the only thing I promised that popped in my mind today that is, is uh, not in my notes. I think, I think. Maybe that in Tar Heels Clemson thing. But Terrence Fretheim, an Old Testament scholar, one of my favorites, passed away a couple years ago. And he wrote a book about um, God and natural disasters, tsunamis and the like. And he uses a metaphor in there. He says, God when he's trying to address a broken people in a broken world, he doesn't fix it the way a mechanic fixes your car. That's not what he does. He doesn't fix it from the outside. He's not so much like somebody taking a wrench and doing something on the outside. He's more like a good medicine that enters into the person and works through them from the inside out. Like he's fully in. He's in the mess. The Word did become flesh. And that's the only answer I have to the reason for that. God is love. I hope that helps. I I don't think that's like some nice little neat slam dunk mic drop answer. My goodness, there's a lot of bad ones out there too. In the name of God, just like a lot of this stuff that's called, you know, this is what the Bible says about science. All this stuff we add to God's Word and make it 50 times harder. So let's try to think from the Bible out on these things. I appreciate very much your attention.